0: Well, good morning. I bring greetings from the saints at Emmanuel OPC in Castle Rock, Colorado. Today's scripture lesson comes from Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to read the first 29 verses and the message will be on the 29th verse. Hear now the word of God. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, On the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it, and they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire." its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are and when I see the blood I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt, Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened, in all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread." Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families, and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? that you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. Oh well, Father, we do come before you with trepidation at these words, seeing the hand of the destroyer, which is you, holy God, and that you have brought forth your people out of the land of bondage after this. And Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit in full measure, and that you would help us to concentrate, that you would illumine the word by your Spirit, and that we would go here better understanding the God whom we have to deal with, who is our God, and we are your people. We pray that you would put away the distractions of the week past and the distractions of the week ahead, and we might focus on you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Passover. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We have been going through the book of Exodus back home. And so there's a bit of a disadvantage to jump into the middle of a book to some degree without the context. So just briefly, I'd like to go over some of the context that leads up to this part in the scriptures. If you remember back in the beginning of Exodus, Joseph had died and a new Pharaoh rose over the land of Egypt who did not know Joseph. And thus the children of Israel were put into bondage, but they grew in number. And if you remember, there was a genocide that was uh, called for to kill all the babies who were in Egypt uh, of Israel, and Moses was spared in the ark of the bulrushes, if you remember, and raised and, and saved by the midwives, and then raised in the household of Pharaoh by his own daughter. And as he grew up, Moses saw some of his kinsmen being mistreated, if you remember, he intervened, he ended up striking down the Egyptian and killing him, and burying him in the sand, and thinking that no one had seen it. He comes out later, and some of his fellow Israelites ask him if he has been placed over them as their ruler and points out what he has done, asking if he's going to strike them as well. And then he knows that what has happened to him is is known, and he flees Egypt, and he ends up in Midian. And if you know, when he's there, he meets Jethro, he ends up marrying Zipporah. God meets him in the burning bush, calls him into service to go back to Egypt to lead his people out. And if you remember, Moses is quite fearful and he says, I am not equipped for this task. And he says, well, your brother Aaron will be there with you. He then gives the staff special powers from God as signs and wonders for the people to believe that Moses is who he says he is from God. But he also says that Pharaoh's heart will be hardened by himself, but also by God. The Israelites get plunged into further difficult labor to make bricks without straw, and then Moses brings these great signs from God, the ten plagues, and for a time the magicians in Pharaoh's court are able to keep up with the things that are going on in a sense. They're not able to remove the plagues. That would have been a far greater sign, but nonetheless, there gets a point at which they no longer can keep up, and they realize this is the hand of Almighty God. And they will not let God's people go. And these ten plagues, if you remember, was water turned into blood. Then the plague of many frogs. then there was a plague of lice, a plague of flies, a plague of the livestock being afflicted. And a distinction made of the people of Israel. And boils on the skin and then hail with thunder and fire from heaven. And then the plague of locusts. And then the plague of darkness, so dark they could not see in front of their face and stayed in their homes for several days, and then finally that brings us here to the death of the firstborn, which will be the last uh, plague that God will bring upon them. Well, the Jewish calendar is based upon the Passover. The first month is set, including the full moon, and that's the reckoning. They were to take this sheep or goat lamb and prepare it and then slaughter it on the 14th day, and of course their days begin at sunset and go to the next day at sunset, And the blood was spattered on the door frame and on the window or the the lintel. And then the angel of the Lord would spare them. And that night much death occurred. And we're going to come back to that. Pharaoh will cry out to Moses and he will let the people go. With over 600,000 men in the armies, as it's referred to of Israel, even though they're not much of an army at this point, plus their children, plus their livestock, plus all the plunder. There are several million people, no doubt, that departed from Israel after this. And if you were to put them 100 yards across, they would probably have spanned over 10 miles as they marched out of Israel, which will come later. A lot of people have a hard time believing in those numbers of people in the, in the period of time that they were in Egypt. But simple math will show you that with lots of kids in God's hand of providence, they... They would be there and we're not to doubt what the scriptures say people doubt the bible and the accuracy of many things like these and we need to be careful of that because if you do gut the supernatural and the the works of god from the bible then you're left with a book of moralisms as was mentioned earlier a lot of the bible a lot of the scriptures so called of of the other religions end up being man-centered and just a book of moralisms but god will begin their long march out of bondage, and eventually into the promised land a generation later. But just today, I want to focus on this Passover event itself. And I hope that you'll be in awe of God and His mercies to His people once again. And some, just as a little aside, the Lord's Supper is so much of a replacement for the Passover of the Old Testament. And we've just enjoyed that here together. And there's no coincidence that our Lord was crucified at the time of the Passover spent the time in the grave, and then rose from the dead after the Old Testament Sabbath into the New Testament Sabbath. And so we see these types and shadows of the Old Testament have passed and been replaced with what we have in the New Testament. Some of you have a handout. I'm sorry I don't have enough for everybody, but there's really just two points today. And the first one is that God is no respecter of persons, and we see this in the Passover. He's no respecter of persons. The firstborn were slain throughout the land, even to the cattle. The word in Hebrew is bekor, and it's the root word that you'll find later about first fruits and the significance that the first have in God's eyes in so many places. The first fruit of the harvest in the spring was to be a tithe to the Lord, and Israel was never to forget this as a result of his deliverance uh, for them from the Egyptians, But in the Old Testament in particular, and it wasn't just in in Israelite culture, but the firstborn held a special place, especially with respect to inheritance. That firstborn would get the double portion. If you remember in the Old Testament, various uh, examples of this, but it wasn't always given to the firstborn as sometimes it was swapped, but the right belonged there. Isaac's own sons, Jacob and Esau, if you remember in Genesis 25, And then it's explained to us in Hebrews 12, 16 to 17. It says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Remember, Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. He didn't consider it to be a special thing. And in many ways, we have strife to this day in the Middle East because of this. There were tears, as Hebrews tells us, but it was not true repentance. Like the way the King James renders it here, it says Esau sought it carefully with tears. But it wasn't true repentance. There was a repentance that leads to life, as 2 Corinthians 7 tells us, and a repentance that doesn't lead to life. So he lost his birthright, and through God's providence, it was given to Jacob as part of his decree. But also Reuben, if you remember, loses his birthright under Jacob because of his sexual sin. And second brother Simeon loses his status for his sin of revenge murder. So it wasn't automatic that the first would get this. And then if you remember, the birthright of Israel himself was transferred to Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and then swapped again. You can read about that in Genesis 48 and 1 Chronicles 5.1, which helps explain a little bit more to us. But being firstborn was still significant. It was still important to be the firstborn in a family, and we see this even today. A firstborn wields much influence in a family, whether for good or for bad over the younger siblings that are in the home. The Bible and the church and history are full of people who were great in a sense, but were not firstborn. I think we've all seen that through experience and other observations and data that firstborns tend to be... More conscientious in a family, a little more ambitious, maybe, a little more aggressive. Uh, they're overrepresented, in fact, at the Ivy League schools in this country and also in the disciplines that require higher education throughout the land in medicine, engineering, law. Do you know that nearly every astronaut has been the oldest child or oldest boy in his family? More than half of all Nobel Prize winners and U.S. presidents have been first born. But what about those who aren't the firstborn? Middle children, and whether you are number two or number nine and you're in the middle somewhere, you, you're still not the first or maybe not the last, tend to be a little more easy going, perhaps a little more peer oriented and get lost in the shuffle and they learn to be peacemakers to some degree. So they have good people skills they often take this role of mediator or peacemaker. But there may be some of you out there who are the youngest and wondering where you fit into this. And we see that youngest tend to be more creative, and they can even be charming. Some might call them manipulative at times. (laughs) But they identify with the underdog, and so you might see them championing egalitarian causes to some degree. They were some of the earliest backers of the Protestant Reformation, unless we forget King David was the youngest. But in Christ, we can all excel regardless of what birth order we have, and so we're not to make too much out of these observations, but think of some of these scriptures in Exodus four, how God viewed Israel and the importance of the firstborn. He says, "And the Lord said to Moses, when you when you go back to Egypt and see, uh, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go.'" Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, this is back in chapter 4, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. And Leviticus 27 tells us that even the firstborn of the animals were the Lord's. And if you remember, Joseph and Mary bring Jesus, their firstborn, to the temple in Luke chapter 2. Simeon blesses God for seeing the consolation of Israel, and Anna the prophetess sees the redemption of Israel. And what we understand that went on in the temple then was that the name of the firstborn was recorded in the rolls of the temple. That's different from the sacrament of circumcision and the dedication uh, for the firstborn, but this enrollment in the temple was important for the firstborn, but back to the story and back to the text, the true history of what went on this night, who was killed that night in Egypt has perplexed many people, and there's lots of difference of opinion among commentators of who actually died. I believe it was just the youngest who were firstborn in the families. And partly I believe that because Pharaoh likely would have been killed and then we would have learned more about older people who were also firstborns and their families. There's some disagreement on that, but that's my take. So just the youngest, perhaps, who are of the younger generation of the firstborns. And this included, as the text says, of Pharaoh. The king of the mightiest land on earth. These 10 plagues have come from God and his magicians could not do much after a while. And he couldn't stop the hand of Almighty God. He couldn't even stop the death of his own son. And there's much grief in the household of Pharaoh. God humbles all proud and powerful men in his own due time. But it wasn't just Pharaoh. In chapter 11, it says that it was to be for maidens at the handmill. But also we learn that it's going to be those who are in the dungeon or the house pit. So there was no respecter of persons. It didn't matter the high and the low in the land of Egypt were all struck by the the destroyer that night because one simple reason, they were not part of God's covenant people. The livestock were struck, cattle, sheep, goats, you name it. And some people wonder, were girls included in this? And again, there is much debate over whether girls were included in the striking of the firstborn. That night. Some of your English translations will actually render this text that it says firstborn males and indeed in Hebrew the noun is masculine but the noun is masculine even for the word man and when it says in Genesis 1:27, "He created man male and female we see a linkage that that doesn't exclusively mean there couldn't have been girls and some of the rabbis in history have affirmed that both males and females were killed at the Passover but oftentimes they draw from tradition and extra biblical literature for the explanation. And if you remember back in Exodus 1, as we've already alluded to, Pharaoh went after the firstborn males in all of Israel. It seems that the sum of the teaching or the preponderance of the information would lead us to believe that this is just the firstborn males, but we're also told that every household experienced death that night and that there was grief everywhere. You know, in Acts 10 chapter, in Acts 10, verse 34, in the King James, it's rendered this way. It says that Peter, and he's talking about Gentiles coming into the church. He says, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Every household in Egypt had to struggle with death that night. No respecter of persons, a fun Greek word, prosopolemtes. But then he goes on to say, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. God's no respecter of person. Paul, Paul affirms this in Romans 2, verse 11. He says, there is no respect of persons with God. Now, he's talking about Jew and Gentile alike needing to follow the law of God, that it's for everybody and not just for the Jew. But think about this night. When the destroyer comes through the land of Egypt, the mightiest land on all earth, think about the cry of grief that went up from those homes. Try to imagine it in Omaha or wherever you're from. If every household experienced death in one night, and if you consider that it's very likely that many of these were very young boys. Any of you who have had a miscarriage, or any of you who have lost a child very young can identify with the grief that must have gone on in every one of these homes throughout the land of Egypt that night. So much death and for so many little ones. And Some will try to ascribe evil to God for doing this, but that's wicked because the scriptures say that God does not sin, there's no evil in him. He's righteous in his actions and what he does. Imagine if this happened here. In one night, think of all of the grief that would be going on in the homes. What a sadness that would be, what a calamity. And there's no doubt there'd be people out there raising their fists to God and shaking at Him in heaven. But there would be nowhere to turn for help. Think of, Matthew Henry said it this way, if any be suddenly taken ill in the night, we are wont to call up neighbors, but the Egyptians could have no help, no comfort, from their neighbors, all being involved in the same calamity. You go to your neighbor and they're crying and grieving and with tears there. Just think of that. If you remember, Herod tried to kill all the boys under two in Bethlehem in Matthew 2 and we read, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning, Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Think of how that would have been in the land of Egypt that night. The sorrow. Well, when God kills, how do we react? In Acts chapter five, if you remember Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a plot of land and separately come to Peter and the apostles and they lie to the Holy Spirit, it says, about how much money they earned and then gave. And God struck them dead. What did Ananias and Sapphira's family think of what God had just done? Did they ascribe to him evil? Did they ascribe to him a just act and a holy thing that he had done? Well, there's only grief for those who will run from God's presence, those who are going to prefer their false gods and their idols that are out there. And that brings us to our next point. God is making his enemies his footstool. He has done it in history. He is still doing it, and he will still do it into the future. We've already heard about Rome once today. Think of all the empires and systems that all come down in God's own timing. Here it was Egypt, but it'll also be Assyria. It'll also be Babylon. It'll also be Greece and then Rome. But then as you go forward in history, you see it throughout history. France at one point had a major empire, England had a major empire, Nazi Germany and the other ones had a major empire, and today we live in a time when America is considered to be the greatest on the planet, the greatest the planet has ever seen. Do we think God will spare us for turning our back on the living and true God? I don't think so. God will not share His glory with another false gods and religions he will not tolerate. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 5, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and taken back to their camp? And their god Dagon, do you remember what happened? They come in the morning and the god of Dagon, the god of Dagon, is fallen over on his face. And so they set their god back up. It's funny that you have to set a god back up, but that's what they did. And they come back the next day and now he's missing his arms. his head and he's fallen over again. And then God breaks out great tumors upon the Philistines and they fear the living and true God and they need to get that ark out of their land because it doesn't belong to them. In in 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 to 5 it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ." I'm already thankful to hear today the exhortation to affirm the exclusiveness of Christianity, that there is only one God and there is only one true religion. But God also brings down the evil people of the world. If you remember in Noah's flood, God was very sad when he looked out and saw that the thoughts and inclinations of the hearts of all mankind was continually evil. And he wiped them out except for eight in a great worldwide flood because of their wickedness. In a sense God hit control alt delete on the earth at that time and eight more got to start over. In Acts 12 if you remember Herod gives an oration and they said this is the voice of a god and not man and because Herod would not give God the glory he is struck down on the spot by God. God will not share his glory with another. But even nice people get killed by God. And we have to be careful how we define this, but nice people, people that we might know who aren't Christian, maybe they're quiet, Maybe they do works of charity, and they do a lot of things that don't seem to be that harmful to other people, but just as in Egypt then, they have no righteousness apart from Christ, and therefore they are not good people, not in God's eyes. We need Christ's righteousness to be spared from the wrath and the curse of God upon sin. And so... Just this first point today is that God is no respecter of persons. If you're outside His covenant, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, and you will find no favor from Him there, except the common favor that all mankind experience when the sun shines on us or the rain falls upon us, and eating of food and enjoyment of family to some degree. But that brings us to an important transition, If God's no respecter of persons, and we're talking about all those people outside of his covenant, what about those who are in his covenant? What about the people of God, and how does God view them? Well, God loves his sheep. That's really the simple point. God loves his sheep. And that's a great encouragement for those of us who are in his church. The firstborn in Israel were spared that night at the Passover, by the symbol of blood on the doorway. God made a distinction throughout the book of Exodus and here culminating in the Passover, between Egypt and between his people Israel. And this reaches the climax here at the Passover. Can you just imagine being in a house in Israel that night? With the destroyer going overhead, passing over your home, and yet striking all of the homes throughout the land of Egypt, and you were spared by that blood that was on the door. Lamentations 3, 23 says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Those of you who know that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, that's where it comes from. It comes from the book of Lamentations. Well, that night God saved those who were great in faith in the covenant family. Perhaps those like Moses and Aaron, we know they were spared in the Passover event. And they were great men of faith. And there were no doubt others who were, had great and strong faith in the Lord. And perhaps you sitting here today are somebody who is great in your faith, unwavering and steadfast. But you remember what the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, when their mother went to Jesus, wanting them to have prominence in the kingdom to come. In Matthew 20, 26 to 28, Jesus has some words for those who would seek to be great. He said, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many." Jesus' perfect blood, our Passover, the one who hung on a cross with nails through His hands and nails through His feet and then a sword pierced into His side and a crown on His head with blood dripping down. That's the only blood that saves us. The Passover is a great picture that this was to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only great one is God. But maybe you don't think of yourself as being great in faith. Maybe you think of yourself as being mediocre or just of a medium level of faith. Well, at the Passover in Egypt, those mediocre in faith, in God's covenant family were also saved by the blood. Those who were just medium, mediocre. Maybe they didn't pray very much. Maybe they didn't listen to godly instruction very well, to the chagrin of their parents and elders. Maybe they were a bit selfish. They lacked deep faith that God was always there and He would take care of them in their time of trouble and calamity. Can any of you relate to this? Do you ever go through times like this that this might affect you? Brothers and sisters, if you have repented of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are safe because you are in His family. He has already saved you. He is not waiting to save you because of the good deeds that you might do to prove to Him of the faith that you have. The vast majority of us probably fall into this category. With times of better faith and other times where our faith wanders and and drops down lower, And no doubt in Egypt that night, there were so many in the household of Israel who really wondered if God was going to spare them that night. But because of the blood, because of the blood, God passed them over. And if you remember, it was not their blood. It was not their blood on the doorpost. It was a picture of the blood on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those medium and mediocre in faith were passed over and saved, being in God's family. But maybe you don't even think you have mediocre faith. Maybe you think you have tiny faith, a little bit of faith, almost imperceptible, just a mustard seed of faith, which is almost imperceptible. But Jesus said, if you have just a mustard seed of faith, tell this mountain to move and it will move for you. Maybe some of you can relate to that kind of faith, that you don't pray very much. You're prone to ignore the instruction and correction that comes to you. You ignore your parents or your elders. Perhaps others call you arrogant or self-centered. You're not interested in the word of God when it's read or when it's preached. You don't maybe want to go to church all the time and you approach all of your problems with the wisdom of man or the latest self-help book that you might find out there. And maybe your doubts surge often, wondering if God is even there sometimes struggling but a tiny seed of faith remains just a tiny seed of faith remains it's all it takes that's all it takes don't get me wrong we are all commanded to strive unto godliness to obey God's law to grow in grace to be sanctified by the word and by the spirit, to grow into maturity and put away the childish things. We are all called to do these things. But your safety is not found in the things that you do. Your safety is in the Lord who has already done these things and saved you already. I don't know, maybe some of you think you're the bottom of the barrel. You're the least in the kingdom or maybe You're afraid that you're not even in the kingdom. Maybe you quiver with doubt and fear knowing the depths of your sin as you come here or wherever you worship week after week and perhaps confessing the same sins to the Lord. Wondering why, God? Why is it that I cannot have mastery over all of the sin in my life? Wondering perhaps if you're even in the household of faith. But it only takes a little tiny seed of faith to be covered by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, just as in baptism, and we can look to the Old Testament in circumcision, look to your baptism. If you're a baptized member in the church of Jesus Christ, you have been brought into the covenant family it is very clear in the new testament that you must have faith you must have faith the baptism is a reassurance to you that you have been brought into the household of god visibly but you must have faith and that faith must have come from a true repentance of your sins when you realized that you couldn't save yourself and therefore you look now to the passover lamb jesus christ who hung on the cross for his people Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28, he goes through a a great explanation of these things and he says, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And now we're back to first all over again. But just as Egypt that night in Israel cried out with grief for the death of all of these little boys, so much blood was shed that night. In the household of Israel, there was no blood shed for the blood covered them all and they would cry, no doubt, in great relief. And in the morning when they would leave their houses, they would walk out with a tremendous relief, hearing the groans and the pains of the people around them, thanking God for sparing them and His love to them. And I hope you too, brothers and sisters, cry out to God with the same relief for the blessings that He pours out to you in your life and the love to your family. But even in death, even in death, for we know that the curse of the fall affects all of us, even in death, we still have relief, and we still have comfort in God's promises of eternal life with Him. That's an earthly comfort given to us through the Scriptures to the church. We are comforted by His presence. We're not fearful of it. That destroyer isn't coming for you if you be in the household of faith. We're talking about our good shepherd. For those who are shepherds, they can appreciate the perspective that sheep don't always appreciate the shepherds. Sometimes the phrase is that sheep bite. And Shepherds, though, good shepherds, are not to leave the field. They're to watch over the sheep. But when the wolf comes, the hireling runs. Be thankful for your shepherds who don't run when the wolf comes. But know that our good shepherd in Jesus Christ never leaves us. He's always faithful. I just received word recently of a friend in another state whose child was a bit of a prodigal. Had wandered away. Had fallen into great sin. It was a time of great grief. Maybe some of you can relate to this in your own families right now. I want to encourage you not to give up and not to give up hope. Because after a period of wandering... This young man has come home. And he poured out his heart to the congregation in an email telling them he was sorry for all the things that he had done, repenting of his sins, and he's come back home. Don't lose hope in the midst of these things. As you're raising your children, these beautiful children that are here, just keep watering those plants, and the good shepherd, we pray, will bring them back. God is so good to us who never lose hope. But while God is making his enemies his footstool, at the same time, he is blessing his church. He is blessing his people, and that means you. You've heard the phrase, count your blessings, count them one by one, and I'm sure that you could do that. If you're like me, you prefer to bring out a sheet of paper and write down all your gripes, but we ought to be counting our blessings. And First and foremost is is the church of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the promise from our Passover lamb. Cling to his promises and not your lack of faith. If you hear nothing else today, please hear that. If you see little faith in your life, and you see lots of doubts and concerns, run to Jesus and cling to His promises that are in His Word at that time, because when you're focusing on yourself, you're focusing on the wrong person. And He has promised to grow you. He has promised to mature you. In Jeremiah 29, 11 to 14, you remember Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, the nation of Israel at that time out of Judah is going into and has gone into exile in Babylon. And while in exile, and in some ways we relate to this, we think we are in exile now. We are a people who don't belong here in one sense, and we see the wickedness of the land. Jeremiah tells them, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. Hear those words, a future for those in exile, a hope. Philippians 1.6, being confident in this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Put your trust in Him and these promises as He's doing it now. First John four four, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. Jesus beats Satan every time. There's no question in that battle. But Acts two thirty nine, and many of you in here can appreciate these promises very much. Peter has just given his tremendous sermon at Pentecost. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 are added to the rolls of the church and they ask what they are to do and he says to repent and he says to believe and he says the promise is to you and to your children. How do so many miss that? How do so many miss that? The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. I just ask you again to look around this room at these precious children. Some of their eyes are closed right now, but that's okay. They're little. We know their frame. But they're here hearing the word of God every week. And they're encouraged by each of you and by your shepherds. Believe that the promise is to them as well. In John, 30, John 6, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, the precious promises of God come to us in full measure. But in John 37 and 40, Jesus reminds us that all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will know by no means cast out. And then a few verses later, and this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. Notice what Jesus does not say there. Those who believe in me and have a tremendous prayer life and a wonderful works of charity and are esteemed within the church and within their culture and within their family, those are the ones that I will raise up as long as I can put them on the scale and have enough good deeds in their life to outweigh the bad deeds in their life as if we were in Islam or some place like that. No, that's not what he says believe. Do you believe? That's the standard of the gospel. Repent and believe. Jesus will not fail us. When he hung on that cross, his blood accomplished exactly what it was set forth to accomplish. For those of you who are going through the catechisms or have gone through it before, let me just remind you a few tremendous passages about the Lord Jesus Christ in our catechism. Proclaiming our captain Jesus to be our prophet, priest, and king, our prophet who reveals to us his people, his holy Bible, guided by the Spirit regarding the will of God for our salvation. There's our prophet, but he's also our priest. He gave himself as a sacrifice to satisfy God's justice and reconcile us to God while interceding for us continually. He died on that cross, but he is alive. He is raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us right now, but he's also our king. He subdues us to himself. He righteously rules over but also defends us against all enemies, all his enemies and all our enemies. That's our redeemer. The one who humiliated himself on that bloody cross at the Passover, that wasn't a coincidence. He died for his sheep because he loves his sheep, his name be exalted forever. Scripture tells us without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is impossible to please God. Well, we got a little bit of a problem there then. I don't know about you. I couldn't well up faith myself, not in my own strength, not in the own selfish, wicked, dark heart that I had, Praise be to God that He gives us the faith to even see Him. You want a real promise keeper? Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And Just bringing this towards a close. As God makes His enemies His footstool, He blesses us in so many ways. He blesses us with our children. Psalm 127, 3 to 5, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. You know, when we lived in England, we had an elder in the church we were staying there who came up to us and they, were a little un- they thought families with large children were a little odd. I think I'm in a safe audience here. And we had four children at the time, which shocked them. Who would ever have that many children? And he came up to me and he said, You know, some people think a quiver held five arrows. And I said, When I go into battle, I'd like a few more arrows because I don't want to run out of arrows that quickly when I'm going into battle. But God blesses us with sometimes no children, sometimes many. But maybe you're in a family that only has one believer. Maybe your husband or your wife is not here and does not know the Lord, perhaps yet. 1 Corinthians 7 promises us that the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy." What tremendous grace and mercy our God gives us even in those families. You know, many don't want children today. They're afraid of the future for them as they look around these dark times. They don't want to bring children into this world, but Jeremiah encouraged those in exile to build houses, to get married, to have children to plant gardens, to be increased and not diminished, to seek the peace where He has placed you. Well, He's placed you and me right here, right now. And this might not be exactly the world that we want it to be, but hopefully we can bring a Christian worldview to bear in every field that we're in to try to affect the world around us, to give glory to God and to bend the knee to His holy law. But in your own families, you have siblings, what a blessing they are. Imagine being huddled in your little home there in Egypt as the, the destroyer goes overhead, passes over your home because of the blood, and you're huddled around there with your siblings. I just want to encourage you siblings that as you grow up, you have a special relationship in your families, and don't lose that when you grow into adulthood. You are either building your relationship now for the future or you're hurting your relationship now for the future, and I pray that you would do the former. And God blesses us in marriage, of course. It's not to be idolized. It's just a picture of Christ and His bride. There's just so many ways that God blesses us. Just briefly, a little bit about finances. We heard some statistics from Dr. Sarfati about Israel and the Jews throughout the world. It's just astounding astonishing, actually, of those statistics that we see there. There's nothing wrong with asking God to bless you financially. Now, you should shy away from Word of Faith ministries and name it, claim it, teachings, and things like this, but, you know, the prayer of Jabez received much attention from people who wanted to see material blessings, but also much criticism from those who thought it was an ungodly prayer. But the Scriptures don't say that. The Scriptures actually say Jabez was an honorable man. He prayed for God's blessing and God gave him that blessing. But there's another man in Scripture who had the opportunity to ask God for something who I think whose prayer is recorded to us is far better, and that was Solomon. Because Solomon prayed for wisdom, God also added to him the blessings of financial wealth. But just lastly, he blesses us here with our community the friendship that you have with each other, the mutual prayer support, the assistance when you're each other in need, the love that you give to each other. Covenant communities have agreed to stick together, and you guys are, many of you in here are of one covenant community. You call each other brother and sister in the first place. Just think about that. You visit each other in the hospital or in hospice. You let each other know that you're praying for each other, The modern church, especially in the West, is largely unpersecuted today. And some of these ties may be not as strong as they might have been in Syria, as we just heard earlier today about a new convert over there. You think pulling that veil off is easy to do in Syria? I bet it wasn't. I bet there's persecution that's coming that way. But we have the opportunity today in the unpersecuted West to church hop and shop to our heart's delight, never investing in others, and only looking for what we might get out of church. But God wants us in the household of God, in Israel, the true Israel, to build relationships and keep them. And we're all gonna struggle with this because all of us sin. So let me just remind you to make peace with those who have offended you. Stick it out together, love covering a multitude of sins. Our Lord and Savior desires us not just to be at peace with one another, but to enjoy the fellowship of one another. Imagine Israel who will leave in the Exodus marching out, having just seen what God has done for them. Can you imagine the tie that bound them there? Being God's people spared by the blood as they walk out of Egypt knowing that there was something very special about being in the covenant household of God. Our sin gets in the way and it needs that healing balm that only comes from Jesus. The one whom you offended. And the one whom I offended, but he didn't give up on us. Let's not give up on each other too quickly, okay? In closing, whether you are strong in faith, mediocre in faith, or just this, just this, wherever you are there, God has a place for you in his household unlike those who are outside of His covenant, but we're not to wait for heaven to enjoy those benefits of being in Christ. We have the church now, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Word, and all these blessings that God pours out for us. The Old Testament children of Israel were blessed in the Passover and have been greatly expanded across this entire planet. And as we consider the last Passover, Jesus Christ, our mutual Savior, be comforted by these words. God loves his people and will never leave us nor forsake us. Let us therefore have confidence to go before the throne of grace and ask for help in our time of need, crying out, Abba, Father, knowing that his open arms are always there for us, even if the faith is only that big. Let us pray. Almighty God, it's hard for us to comprehend what went on that night at the Passover in Egypt. It's hard for us to understand the grief that the Egyptians must have felt. So much death in one night, every household affected. And yet there were other homes that were spared by the blood. What a picture to us of the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on a tree, shedding His blood for Israel. We thank You that You have grafted us into Israel, making us in faith to be Your covenant people now. We praise Your name for this. And we pray, Father, that You will equip us unto good works, strength and growth and grace, that we would mature, that we would put away sin, put to death the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, that all these things would slowly disappear from our lives as you conform us into the image of your Son. Father, I pray that everyone will walk out of here today just a little more confident in the hope of Jesus saving them and them not saving themselves. And that whatever little bit of faith that they find in the depths of their heart. That the doubts will be dispelled. That the liar, Satan, will not win the day convincing them that they are outside of your favor. But with that little bit of faith, Father, help us go forward in a mighty way to advance your kingdom. And bring glory to your name alone as the only name under heaven by which men may be saved.